Well, as we, uh, as we have done uh, from time to time and as we started to last week, occasionally we'll, even, even though we're in this study of 1 Corinthians and we've been in chapter 10 for a number of weeks, um, in any study through the scriptures, uh, even if it's a systematic, you know, verse-by-verse study of a particular epistle or book, um, you, you frequently will come across passages of scripture that are seminal in their import as it relates to some key uh, doctrinal matter, some, some key doctrine of the church, or potentially they're significant in the way that they address a particular matter that has become a point of urgency in the life of the church or in the culture that is impacting believers. And so from time to time, when those instances come up, we'll kind of take a little bit of a, a side trail and we'll, we'll take up whatever that matter is. And this is, this is what's uh, happened uh, over the course of our study as we've arrived in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, particularly in verses 14, um, where the Apostle Paul is beginning to wrap up his large discussion around this matter of idolatry and eating food sacrificed to idols and, and not caring properly about other believers who struggle and, and also having a sense of flippancy and arrogance about the, the, the exercise of our liberties in Christ. But he says, therefore, in verse 14 of chapter 10, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he says in verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Apostle Paul takes it upon himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to utilize or to raise up this matter of the Lord's Supper or communion as a point of not just illustration, but as a, a particularly significant identification point for believers in the body of Christ, knit together in communal life in Christ. This really gets at the heart of what the, the Apostle Paul has been, dealing, has been dealing with, with these Corinthians, whether it has manifested itself in the, the sort of flagrant exercise of Christian liberty and not caring about another brother or sister in the church who might have a weaker conscience and might be deeply offended, have their consciences provoked by your exercise of your liberty because you know that eating food sacrificed to idols, again, assuming you're a first century, first century citizen of Corinth, uh, you know that that really doesn't mean anything, but you're not sensitive to the other believers around you who that might be a point of contention or challenge or trouble to them. And so you become flippant and arrogant about it. You know, Prior to that, he was dealing with flippancy and arrogance as it related to things like marriage and singleness or lawsuits, you know, going, taking brothers and sisters to court, uh, issues of sexual immorality within the church. There, were, there was an arrogant flippancy about crucial matters that were really deeply and profoundly and adversely affecting life in the body of Christ. And so he's bringing this to another critical point by talking specifically about the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and he's putting it into the frame of the communion meal. We've been discussing this, this matter of how we are to walk faithfully in a world full of idols, full of idolatry, how we are to walk faithfully in the recognition that the inclination of our heart in our flesh is toward idolatry, that we have idols in our own hearts that we have to uh, bring to the ground and we have to mortify, mortify those areas of our flesh that move us toward those, those inclinations of idolatry. How do we do that? What are some ways that we can do that? And the Apostle Paul has been kind of teaching us that. We talked about resisting prideful presumption by re- recalling redemptive history. We saw that in the first 12 verses where the Apostle Paul just walks through Old Testament narrative around the Exodus and really, really compels us to take note of how God has worked in redemptive history, writ large, and to reflect upon these things. And, and he still is working in those ways. He, people tend to uh, receive his blessings and receive his deliverance and receive his provision and revel in it for a time and then become discontent 
and, and, and become disillusioned and become self-reliant and become self-pitying and become factious. And ultimately, it creates vulnerabilities and ultimately, it often leads to all manner of, of perversion, but most prominently, idolatry and its sort of counterpart, sexual immorality. So he, he showed that pattern in, in the Old Testament narrative of the Exodus, and this is what, this is what the Corinthians were, were wrestling with as well. We're called to resist common, excuse me, resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. We see this in verses 13 to 14. This recognition that no sin has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation, I should say, has overtaken you. And this, this call for us to trust in the Lord, trust in His faithfulness, to give us what we need to be able to endure every trial and to overcome every temptation in His power because He is faithful to always provide a way of escape. The comprehensive description in those few verses, uh, there in, in verses 13 to 14, really emphasize the faithfulness of God as our provider and our deliverer as we have to grapple with and confront temptation and trial. And it's not about us willing ourselves into holiness, but it's about us trusting God's provision more. And then we get to this third point that we started looking at really and veering off into this discussion about the Lord's Supper in verses 14 to 18, we need to recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul is driving them to, for them to recognize what what they're not seeing is what is the true essence of fellowship, of communal fellowship in Christ. And this is really a message that I think is so pertinent for us in our day and time, because we are very... um, consumer-driven, even when it comes to our thinking about the church. We, we are very schedule-driven. We are very uh, preference-driven. You know, the life, our, our, our engagement oftentimes, and I'm not saying this is necessarily widely characteristic of our church, um, because as all of you know, we're better than every other church everywhere. You know, that's just, everybody knows that. No, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that, is that we are, we, we, tend to have a lot of people who are engaged in faithful ministry and body life um, because they are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and that's what, that's what spiritual life in them is compelling them to do. But nevertheless, we also can get trapped into this mindset where the church is a place you go, and uh, depending upon your particular preferences or you know, what's going on in your personal schedule, you know, that will kind of determine whether or not you can participate where you can kind of go buy the product that the church is selling at that given time, where you can go sort of, you know, sign up for the service that the, the church is delivering for this particular season or whatever. I mean, we can easily get kind of sucked into a mindset that is more akin to how we live our lives in, you know, a capitalistic economy rather than understanding what the Apostle Paul is driving us back to and saying, do you not understand that that you're a part of a, the body of Christ, that, that when you take this cup of blessing, when you take this bread of communal fellowship, it is a participation as a body in the body of Christ. He's, he's calling them to deeper, more profound thinking and understanding, and therefore, correspondingly profound action and attitude that is reflective of who they are in Christ. And this is not what was happening as I said, there was an arrogance, there was a flippancy, it led to self-pity, it led to self-centeredness, it led to a lack of concern for others and all these different things that can happen to any of us and it can happen in any church and it can become deadly to the fruitfulness and life and ministry of any gathered assembly of God's people. So he brings up this matter of, of participation around the Lord's table and the importance of recognizing what it is we're talking about he invokes this new covenant practice of communion really as a way to rebuke the Corinthians for this dangerous flippancy. They were participating in pagan ritual feasts, like participating in them as though it was no big deal. And he was saying, do you not know that you're participating with demons when you do that? And then you're participating in the Lord's table, you know, the next thing on your schedule is to gather with the church and take communion. 
And so he's rebuking this kind of flippancy and this kind of lack of awareness of what it is they're actually doing. He, he raises, though, this, this term in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, he says, in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is sort of the key word here in this little section. Participation is the familiar Greek term koinonia, the term for we often use for fellowship. It can mean a close association involving mutual interests, a sharing of common life, a common association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. So that's what this term really means. You are, you are in fellowship in the blood of Christ. You are in close association, in close relationship, in common life, in communion in the body of Christ as you break bread, as you take the cup that you bless. So we need to understand really what this participation is all about, what this fellowship really means as we fellowship or participate in the blood and the body of Christ, even through the practice of communion. What is it that we're actually talking about? Now, we, we began to discuss last week that um, throughout church history, four primary views on communion have really emerged as the most prominent. Uh, the first view that we talked about last week at some length is the Roman Catholic view, often referred to as transubstantiation. We're talking specifically about this idea of what, what it means for us to participate in the body and participate in the blood of Christ. So the Roman Catholic view, of course, is this view of transubstantiation. Um, the Lutheran view... Uh, raises up a term, an idea, a concept that, that is called consubstantiation, or other, another name for it is real presence. The Reformed view emphasizes Christ's spiritual presence. And then what's called the Zwinglian view, or it's often referred to without Ulrich Zwingli's name mentioned, the memorial view sees it as a memorial celebration. Okay. Those are the four views that are prominent, and as I said, you know, we began to look at the first few in some detail last week, but you'll remember we actually talked about it from the standpoint, or we started by looking at, at Scripture itself to understand what, what does Scripture say about this. I mean, moving away from what the Apostle Paul is just sort of picking up in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and just using as a point of reference, sort of a point of context that they already understood or already had some reference point for is they were participants in this communal meal together at, at various times or on a regular basis. We, we want to go back to where there's an institution of this and the practice of it as it plays out in the life of the church. So we did that. We looked, for example, at Luke chapter 22, and then you could also go to Matthew, I believe, 26, and there's a, a reference in Mark as well. These, these accounts that where, where the gospel writers uh, give us the scene in the upper room shortly before Jesus is arrested, put on trial and crucified, where they're partaking of the Passover meal and he institutes this, this new covenant sort of transformed approach or engagement or participation or practice that we now refer to as communion or the Lord's Table, or the Lord's Supper. But what we know is that it was clearly instituted by Christ. It, it was clearly called upon as a, a, an ordinance that would be repeated, that, that you, you would continue to do this. He says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So there's this understanding that he's instituting a new practice. He's transforming some elements of what was the traditional Passover meal into a new covenant understanding of even what all of that was really pointing to. And then we looked at how this is, was evident in early church history. You see, for example, in Acts chapter 2, what the new church, was, the early church was devoting itself to, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, this reference to the breaking of bread, as characteristic of the early church where they would come together for 
a communal meal, but also in conjunction with that communal fellowship meal, they would also partake of the Lord's table. They would have this sort of more ceremonial approach to uh, partaking of the bread and the wine. So it was a part of, Jesus instituted it. It was a part of early church practice. Um, The Apostle Paul speaks of it very explicitly in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about what he received from the Lord, and then he taught them about it very explicitly, and he quotes Jesus, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he gives another sort of angle to what we're actually doing when we partake. We recognize that this practice of communion has been practiced by the church, by God's people, by the gathering of God's people, since Jesus instituted it in the upper room. But the historical backdrop of it is the Passover, and we read the entire section of uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 28, to to take note of of this Passover event, that the Passover celebration was a remembrance of. And we noted in that particular section, particularly in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, where he says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. A remembrance, in other words. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute or as an ordinance, you could say. Forever you shall keep it as a feast. So we see even in the actual account, the actual historical account of the Passover, which was in conjunction with the final plague of Egypt, where the destroying angel sent by God would pass over the homes and wherever the blood of an unblemished lamb or an unblemished goat was spread on the doorposts and the lintels of that home, the destroying angel would pass over. And this not only was a deliverance from the judgment on that particular, of that particular plague, but it, it, it initiated the actual deliverance from bondage. In fact, he instructed them, when you partake of this meal in, in sort of, you know, ancient vernacular, you know, wear your gym shoes and your gym shorts, like, you know, gird up your loins, be ready to go. This is, you're about to, you're about to walk out of this place. So this whole occasion that actually took place, they're called to establish this celebration that becomes a memorial remembrance of this actual occurrence. And then you see this pushing forward where Jesus transforms it into a new covenant celebration because he was about to become the unblemished lamb. His blood was going to be shed to provide the satisfaction, the propitiation for the source of our bondage, namely sin. In the actual historical account of the Exodus, the source of Egyptian bondage was Pharaoh, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And so judgment was coming on Pharaoh and on his his kingdom. And they were going to be delivered from the source of their bondage. And so Jesus is picking this whole thing up and saying, the final deliverance, the ultimate sacrifice, my blood and my body will be shed. And note that it is, it is at the Passover, which is intended to be a reflection and a remembrance, where he institutes this, and he uses present tense to say, this is my body and this is my blood, to institute it. But this is prior to him actually going to the cross and shedding his blood. And yet, even in the midst of that institution of this new meal for new covenant believers... He's calling them to do it as often as they do in remembrance of something that's about to happen, not what has already happened. And the, the, the emphasis on this is for them to be, be able to understand the nature of his atoning sacrifice. And in, and in partaking of these elements, 
that they are understanding that they are participating in, their only way of deliverance is for them to be a participant in, to be identified with him in his sacrifice, in his judgment. This is the nature of, this is basically the nature of the atoning work of Christ. He became sin. He took our place. He was the righteous substitute. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness, His perfections were imputed to us. We take on His righteousness. He takes on our sin, satisfies the wrath of God in His death, sheds His blood for the remission of sins, so that we can be identified Him in His resurrected life. And we participate with Him in that. And we will be joined with Him eternally with a new body, at the final resurrection. This is all this grand picture of the redemptive work of God, but particularly in His atoning sacrificial work and our identification with it in Him. Now, as we looked at the Roman Catholic view, we quickly noted that they invest a lot of uh, mysticism, and a lot of really error into their understanding of this communal meal, and particularly how they understand this reference to this is my body, this is my blood. The official Roman Catholic teaching that we refer to as transubstantiation, it refers to a change that takes place during the sacrament of Holy Communion. And this change involves the whole substance of the bread and wine being turned miraculously into the whole substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. The very nature of the Mass is is sacrifice. That you partake of the elements of communion that at the point of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest prays and the elements of communion literally become the actual body and the actual blood of Christ that then becomes a means of of transferring graces to the recipient. It also becomes a means by which Christ is sacrificed again for the remission of our sins. And we talked about how this is a a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church through which grace is conferred upon the recipient. But one one thing I'll just recount for us In the actual Roman Missal, this is the book that prescribes the prayers and chants and the services of worship for the Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about this Eucharistic prayer that precedes the partaking of communion. And a key section of that that procedure of the Eucharistic prayer, it's called the Epiclesis, in which by means of particular invocations, it says... The church implores the power of the Holy Spirit that the gifts offered by human hands be consecrated, that is, become Christ's body and blood, the elements become Christ's body and blood, and that the unblemished sacrificial victim to be consumed in communion may be for the salvation of those who partake of it. So it's very explicit, and it's very literal. The elements become Christ's body and His blood, they're partaken of or consumed. The victims, the sacrificial victims, body and blood, are consumed for the salvation of those who will partake of it. That's from their own documentation. Now, clearly, this is not a view that we would uh, embrace. Um, a number of reasons that we could point to that we talked about last time. Uh, certainly, it fails to recognize the significance of Christ's statements, this is my body and this is my blood. He also said, I'm the bread of life, and Roman Catholics use this to support their understanding of the Eucharist. And he says, I am, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine. So these metaphorical expressions that illustrate the truth of the gospel in profound ways, but they're not to be understood in woodenly, woodenly literalistic terms. So you basically are taking something to be a literal acknowledgement by Christ that apostles, uh, disciples gathered with me, I'm holding up a cup of wine, this cup of blessing, it's the third cup of the meal in Passover, 
and I'm giving thanks, and in so doing, I'm declaring that this is now my actual blood. That, that is the interpretation, that that's what Christ was doing, and that's what he meant by what he said. This is no longer wine, this is actually my blood, and we're going to partake of my blood. And then the bread the same way. That's the, that's the only way that you can interpret that, is to interpret it literally. And yet, there are other places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus uses the same kind of locution, the same kind of language to refer to himself in descriptive metaphors that we would not equate in the same way. So it really is an interpretive matter as well. You get, you get beyond sort of the personal discomfort I have in just thinking about this consumption of the victim. I just it, Even the language itself is just disquieting to me. But just the interpretive principle there seems, um, seems un- unnecessary at best and really far-fetched at worst. Then you have the Lutheran view. We talked about that at some length. We didn't really get all the way through it. But the Lutheran view is this uh, concept of consubstantiation. So you've got transubstantiation with the Roman Catholic view where the elements of communion actually become, they transform the substance of them, transforms into actual body and actual blood of Christ. Consubstantiation, con meaning with, the, the actual uh, body, excuse me, the actual uh, elements of communion, Christ is present with the elements. He's physically present with, in, through, and under they would say, the elements. Sounds a little bit like a distinction without a difference, but there are fundamental doctrinal differences here. Luther, uh, it's important to note, rejected the, the, the Roman Catholic conception of transubstantiation. He did not believe that the elements literally become the physical body and the physical blood that you then consume. He just wanted to, he, he, he just wanted to hold on to a literal interpretation of Jesus saying, this is my body and this is my blood, and try to articulate how that would actually work itself out in the partaking of the elements. So it's this idea of Christ himself physically being present in and under and through the elements. He he understood, one writer said, the Lord's Supper above all as a gift to be received, from a gracious God, for this reason, he absolutely and resolutely opposed the idea of the Mass as sacrifice, according to which Christ instituted the Mass as a means of atonement for the actual sins, both of the living and the dead. Luther did not see any basis for the, this idea in Scripture, which taught him that the suffering of Christ is an adequate sacrifice for all sins, original as well as actual. For Luther, the daily masses in which the priests offer up the host amounted to an express denial of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross made once for all as a perfect atonement for sin. So I want to make that clear distinction. That even though it's hard to kind of draw a clear distinction between this idea of Christ being present in, under, and through the elements physically, uh, he definitely did not believe that, that Christ was being sacrificed over and over again physically and that sacrifice over and over again, as you partook of it, was salvific in its deliverance of Christ's body and blood to you as the recipient. There is a distinction that I want to at least try to articulate. Um, Luther's uh, understanding and conviction that Christ's real presence was in, under, and through the elements of communion rests, and this is the key to understand Lutheranism and its view on this, it rests upon his interpretation of what is referred to as the words of institution. The words of Christ when he instituted the Lord's Supper. When he said, this is my body and this is my blood. Luther pounded on that. The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ himself, God in human form, the Savior of the world, said this. And you're going to deny it? That was basically Luther's posture around this. Joel Otto, a professor at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, says it like this, True Lutherans teach what Jesus clearly said on the night he was betrayed. Today, uh, excuse me, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant. 
We do not deny what Jesus said. We do not try to explain how Jesus can be present with his body and blood under bread and wine. Martin Luther even wrote about this. Luther says this, quote, Why do we not put aside such curiosity and cling simply to the words of Christ, willing to remain in ignorance of what takes place here and content that the real body of Christ is presently by virtue of the words? So it's just, he, he said it, it is what it is. I'm trying to explain it, but it's still a mystery. Why are you trifling over that? Just submit to what Jesus said. That's kind of the idea. This professor goes on to say, We believe that Jesus' body and blood are really and truly present in the Lord's Supper. Body and blood. And we believe that Jesus is giving real and true spiritual gifts to us through this eating and drinking. Forgiveness, life, and salvation. So it is a means of grace. It's not the atoning means of grace, but it is a means of providing spiritual life and vitality. It is pure gospel for our comfort and spiritual strength. We simply hold to Jesus' words. This is what true Lutherans do, as Luther emphasized in the larger catechism. Here's Luther again. We speak about the bread and wine, that is Christ's body and blood, and has the words attached to it. That, we say, is truly the treasure and nothing else, through which such forgiveness is gained. Now, the only way this treasure is passed along and made our very own is in the words given and shed for you. For in the words you have both truths, that is, Christ's body and blood, and it is yours as a treasure and a gift. So this is my body given for you. This is how that gift of Christ's body, his atoning sacrifice, is given to you, and the the real presence of his body and blood are in, over, and under the elements. And don't try to explain it further than that. Why are you trifling over that? Now, just so you know how, how intense Luther stood on this conviction about is means is, and there is no other way to understand what is means in the context of the words of institution that Jesus articulated, this is my body, this is my blood. There was a bit of a debate over this between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli called the Marburg Colloquy. Now, I want us to host a colloquy. I just, want to be, I, I just want to go to a colloquy. I don't even know why, but it's just like, that would be cool. The Marburg Colloquy of 1529, here's what Luther said in his sort of final, uh, in his debate with Zwingli. Now, understand, Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther. Zwingli was in um, Switzerland and Zurich. And Geneva, I should say, Zurich or Geneva? Zurich, yeah, Zurich. And uh, uh, Martin Luther was in uh, Germany. And they were sort of enlivened to principles basically of sola scriptura and struggling with the principles and practices and authority of the Roman Catholic Church separately, not even knowing it for a time. Eventually, though, they became aware of one another in their works and their writings. There was some, um, um, I don't know, some disagreement about what they were hearing about one another. There was political alliances that were being formed. Uh, I'm getting into a whole church history thing. Let me just put it to you this way. The Marburg Colloquy was not just to try to get um, Zwingli and Luther to, you know, throw a stick in the fire and sing Kumbaya and go away, happy Christian brothers. There was also political alliances that were trying to be forged because Charles V, the, the Holy Roman Catholic Emperor, was, they, they wanted to have strength of number, and it was a political and even a military kind of thing that was going on. I mean, it was a different day, okay? Nonetheless, they agreed to come together around this issue. There were, I think there was 15, maybe 15 uh, points of doctrine um, that they came together to determine, are we in alignment or not? Are we reforming in the same way of reform or are we not? They agreed on all of them except this. Every single point of doctrine, they came to a certain level of compatibility and agreement and, I guess you would say, fellowship and brotherhood. But they could not agree around this. And Luther was so convicted about the importance uh, 
of his position that he claimed that Zwingli, by not embracing this real presence position, was of another spirit. He was not a believer. That's how deep this ran. Uh, John Gerstner, well-known Reformed theologian of uh, kind of a 20th century, if you will, um, he, he referred to this colloquy as one of the saddest events in Reformation history. You have these two incredible reformers who, are, who God is using in this amazing work of God in these two parts of Europe, and they come together, and there's this one matter, and they cannot agree, and it creates a rift between them that's profound. Interesting lesson to take away from that. But at that colloquy, Martin Luther says this, I do not ask how Christ can be God and man, and how his natures could be united, for God is able to act far beyond our imagination. To the word of God, one must yield. It is up to you to prove that the body of Christ is not there when Christ himself says, this is my body. I do not want to hear what reason says. I completely reject carnal or geometrical arguments, as, for example, that a large body could not fill a small space. God is above and beyond all mathematics, and his words are to be adored and observed with awe. God, however, commands, take, eat, this is my body. I request, therefore, a valid proof from Holy Writ that these words do not mean what they say. So he was, that was it. He was centered on, here's what Jesus said, and he meant literally, and there's no other way to understand it, even though there's other testimony of Scripture, of Jesus' words himself, there's no other way to understand what he meant by what he said. And it caused this, this rift between Zwingli and, and Luther over this one, one point. Now, it is true that you really can't go too far to explain the incarnation and how, God can, uh, how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. And there's definitely even mystery in how we might even articulate our understanding of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't even know if I could fully articulate how... Christ is present among us as we gather as God's people. Like when, when, you, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and we start talking about parts of the body, and how can an eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? And he uses this metaphor to describe the church and its members as actually physical body with gifts. And I mean, there, there's an element of mystery, but I just know that, that it works. Like it just, it's actually a good metaphor for how the spiritual body of Christ actually works and flourishes and functions, and then how it doesn't work. So there's elements of mystery associated with all of this that I, I can't fully explain down to the, to the letter. But nevertheless, uh, I would not say that you have to, even if, even if, like if I was at that colloquy with Martin Luther, I would be appealing to him to say, really, we're going to divide over this? We're going to divide over something that you say you can't fully explain? Just because, I, I mean, anyway. Word of caution to all of us. Then there's the Reformed view. Do you guys need to maybe stand up, do some calisthenics? I know that this is very kind of somewhat dry, but hopefully it's helpful in some way. The Reformed view emphasizes uh, what's considered to be spiritual presence. Let me read a certain description from, from this view. This position stems from John Calvin and is the predominant Reformed position, although there is a spectrum of understanding among those who identify as theologically Reformed. Calvin rejected both the idea of a physical change to the bread and wine and the idea of a bare memorial. At the supper, Christ is present spiritually in a special way, but is not present physically. There is a true spiritual communion that takes place between the Lord and His church as it is celebrated. The word is retains a symbolic and not literal meaning, but at the same time, there is true sharing in Christ that takes place. Now, here's, here's a commentary on this particular view from, from the book Biblical Doctrine. It says, on one hand, it is not wrong to speak of the Lord Jesus being spiritually present with his people when they celebrate communion, since he is spiritually present with believers all the time. On the other hand, 
the language of spiritual presence can be potentially confusing and unhelpful, perhaps causing some to think in terms of mystical encounters, ecstatic experiences, or the real presence in a Lutheran or even Roman Catholic way, end quote. So there's an element here where, you know, there is, there is always, as, as, as the body of Christ gathers, uh, Christ is present, there is a spiritual presence, but the, the kind of the caution with this strictly spiritual presence kind of view is that there's a special, unique kind of presence in which special experience is to be garnered. That can that can sort of lead people down to seeking the experience as opposed to joining together in a communal meal to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and to remember the, the graciousness of his, of his uh, sacrifice on our behalf. I mean, you, know, you see what I'm saying? It's like we can become, we can gravitate towards seeking an experience that is special and unique through this, this ceremony. And so that's just kind of a, a word of caution. It's not to say that there's no validity in an understanding of Christ's presence as we gather and partake in communion. Okay, I hope, that, hope that's clear. And then you have the, what's called the Zwingli view or the memorial celebration. Um, again, Ulrich Zwingli, most important Swiss reformer, um, he says this, you can hear in some of their quotes back and forth, you can hear him kind of, you know, uh, a little backhand at Luther. He says, before anyone in the area had ever heard of Luther, I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516, just so you know. <laughs> I started preaching the gospel before I had even heard Luther's name. Luther, whose name I did not know for at least two years, had definitely not instructed me. I followed Holy Scripture alone. A little, a little defensive there, aren't you, Ulrich? Um, but that just kind of gives you a taste of, of that, uh, that discord that was between them. Uh, but uh, one writer describes Wingley's view in this way. Zwingli insisted that Jesus' statement that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood should be taken figuratively, not literally. After all, Jesus does use the verb to be in clearly symbolic ways in the Gospels. Not only does he say, I am the bread of life, but also I am the door and I am the vine. The sacrifice of Jesus at the cross is complete once for all, and so the supper is a pictorial reminder, a memorial. Although Christ is always present with his people, he is not specially present in the supper. So this is, this is really confining a view of communion to just a remembrance, just symbolic, just memorial. That's the subtle distinction between this view and the what's called the Reformed view, the spiritual presence view. There is no special presence of Christ. There is just the presence of Christ as he's always present. Uh, He's always present, but he's always uh, especially present with his people when they gather. So that's kind of the distinction between those views. Now, I want to read a couple of closing remarks from a few different uh, commentaries to try to wrap this up. Uh, The Pillar New Testament commentary sort of describes all of this like this. The Lord's Supper, like the Last Supper, was based upon the Passover Cedar, S-E-D-E-R, the Passover Cedar. And Paul's comments here should be understood in light of that context. The final cup of the Passover meal and the Last Supper was called the cup of blessing. Just as participation in the Passover celebration entailed participation in the benefits of the Passover sacrifice, So participation in the Lord's Supper entails participation in the benefits of his sacrificial death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, the cup will be interpreted as a reference to the new covenant in Christ's blood. Paul evidently has in mind the Christian's participation in the benefits of Christ's covenant-establishing sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is best understood as a covenant-ratifying meal in which the whole community was to participate. So this kind of gives you a sense in which, this kind of, as we, as we did last time, kind of draws together this remembrance of Passover with remembrance of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ that we must, if we are Christ's own, we must participate in. 
We are participants in that sacrifice. There are other places even in the New Testament, for example, where the Apostle Paul talks about our identity with Christ and our participation with Christ. He even talks about participating with him in his sufferings. So as the Apostle Paul is traveling about on his missionary journeys and being confronted by various sources of persecution, whether it be the Jewish persecutors or whether it be the the pagan persecutors, and dealing with all manner of life-threatening confrontations and stonings and, and going hungry and all the things that he describes in 2 Corinthians, and even in 1 Corinthians that we've talked about before, he, he rejoices in the fact that he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He is participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is not the Apostle Paul saying, when I am suffering for the gospel, I am also simultaneously, physically suffering the agony of Christ on the cross. See, do, you, do you see how, he's, how that language is being used in that way? It's not, it's not a hard stretch. So it kind of... In some ways, it kind of boggles the mind why it would be so necessary to take this one piece in that literal of an application and, and to force it into a doctrinal framework that really ends up being leading people into error. The fact of the matter is, is that there's no shortage of concern about how believers or Roman Catholics, per se, Uh, choose to participate or not participate, or choose to believe what they believe or not believe what they believe. There's no shortage of consternation over this um, as it relates to this partaking of these elements of communion. Some of it lands in the place of the same thing we've been talking about with the Corinthians, this attitude of flippancy, this attitude of nonchalance, this attitude of being able to come in and out of a church gathering and just stream in and stream out, mostly unaffected, except for going away and saying, wow, that was a great sermon, or something like that. There's a, there's a, there's a caution in all of this that, that any kind of flippancy, when we are compelled and called upon to reflect and think deeply on the grace of God in Christ, on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, on the constant work and provision of Christ sustaining us. When we, when we find ourselves thinking and living in ways where we don't recognize that it, isn't, it is literally, not figuratively, but literally in Him that we live and move and have our being. That we don't own or control a future. That our, the very breath that we are inhaling and exhaling is a gift from His all-powerful and all-sustaining hand and nothing more. That when we become so self-contained and self-satisfied and autonomous in our thinking, and then we bring that into life in the body of Christ, and then we also come to a communion table in which it is a compulsion of the believer to reflect upon the moment that Christ instituted this and then went from there to an arrest and to several false trials and then sinlessly went to the cross to bear all the shame and guilt of our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to satisfy the wrath of God in that act, that we would bring that self-sufficiency and that sort of lack of reflection and care to the communion meal is a travesty at minimum for any believer. And so some would say that that the other views that would say that it is actually the body and blood of Christ, or at least it is Christ in and under and through, or at least his spiritual presence is active in a special way, at least that serves as some kind of hedge against that kind of flippancy and lack of care and concern when you come before the table. But I would argue that flippancy before the kind mercy and grace of God is easy for anyone to engage in, regardless of what you believe about communion. And in fact, if you believe that you can go and live your life however you want to live your life, as long as you are regularly 
consuming the body and blood of Christ after the priest prays the prayer over it, can that not invoke, produce, cultivate a certain level of flippancy about sanctification and life in Christ? The issue is not we have to make sure that people take seriously this meal so we're going to infuse it with meaning that's not flowing out of the text of Scripture. That would be the argument that some people accuse. Anyone that would embrace anything less than Christ being physically or really present in the elements of communion, one of the concerns that they would have is a flippancy. And I would say I have that concern too. In fact, we'll look at this when we get to chapter 11 where Paul says, don't partake of this in an unworthy manner and bring judgment upon yourself. We are called to be thoughtful and reflective and careful even in the partaking of the communion elements, even if our particular position is one of memorial and symbol. And symbol. Biblical doctrine says this, when all the biblical texts are considered, the Lord's table is best understood as a memorial celebration that strengthens believers in their walk with Christ because one, it commemorates Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice symbolized by the elements of the bread and the cup. And two, it reminds believers of the historical truths of the gospel, including Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. Three, it prompts believers to repent of any known sin. Four, it causes them to rejoice in their redemption from sin and in the saving union with Christ. And five, it motivates them to continue walking in loving obedience to the Lord. And six, it reminds them to hope in His imminent return. All of this can only happen in our partaking of communion if we legitimately and merely, I would say, engage our hearts and minds around the truths that the Lord's table is calling us to remember. There is a there is a important principle for every believer, especially those of us who've been in the faith for some long period of time. It is never a good thing. It is always a detrimental thing when we forget to remember all the time our salvation. When we do not rehearse in our minds the Lord saving us. When we don't recall we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we don't think about what God has done to give us life in Christ, we become flippant in all kinds of ways. We become careless in all kinds of ways. And then we come to the Lord's table, which the very purpose of it is to draw a sharp focus on this, this salvation in Christ, and we're flippant again. It's a travesty. I want to read to you one final statement. I read it last time, but just to kind of seal it up in our minds. This is the um, this is what our doctrinal statement says about communion, and then we'll close with that. The Lord's Supper is an act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize and proclaim the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. It should always be preceded by solemn self-examination. The elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and the blood of Christ. When we properly share in communion, we spiritually participate in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with other believers. The Lord's Supper is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to every believer. Let's pray.